And I do want to correct one thing. I was not there, but I know almost for certain that Bill did not say that was the dumbest thing he ever heard. He said it was the stupidest effing thing he ever heard. <laughs> right? That was the yeah. quote. I always modify <laughs> some of those quotes. I always modify <laughs> some of those quotes. This, this is a family show. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. Can you believe Xbox has been around for 20 years? Our guest, Robbie Bach, was there at the beginning, and he led Microsoft's gaming business for many years as chief Xbox officer and president of Microsoft's entertainment and devices division. Robbie is board chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that promotes bipartisanship. He serves on the National Board of Governors for Boys and Girls Club of America, and he's on the board of Magic Leap, the augmented reality company. And if that wasn't enough, he just published his second book, which is his debut novel, a techno thriller called The Wilkes Insurrection. Robbie Bach, we need to talk about retirement and what that means, but we're, we're glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, I, it, thanks for having me on. I, I will tell you that I never use the R word. Um, even, even when I decided to leave Microsoft, that wasn't a, a retirement. That was, uh, just a chance to shift. In fact, I think you, you did my final interview at Microsoft. I, I, I remember I, it. I remember it. Uh, we, we sat in my office and, uh, you talked about, well, what are you going to go do? Why are you leaving Microsoft? All that kind of stuff. And it was to go do some of the things you just mentioned. I had other things on my, on my dance card. I think the first question I asked was, "What did Steve Ballmer do to you? Why, why are you, why are you getting out of this place?" I think that's true. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, I remember. Gosh, I was reminiscing a little bit. Some of the first high-pressure interviews that I did were with you at the E3 video game convention. Yep. I remember losing sleep. Not that I didn't lose sleep over this particular podcast discussion, but but you know, twenty years ago. Uh, well, maybe more like eighteen years ago in in Los Angeles. I guess it was at E3. Yeah. I would lose sleep over the questions I was going to ask you. I wrote them all out on a pad and. Look at us now, just sort of flying by the seat of our pants, John. Well, what's the question you really want to ask, Robbie, about <laughs> well, Xbox? <laughs> well, here's the thing, Robbie. Later on, we're going to talk about your new novel. I just bought it. I'm getting into it now. I was reading it as I was uh, going to bed last night. The Wilkes Insurrection. Is that the right way, way to pronounce that? It is. So we'll talk about that later. But first, you know, a lot of people did not expect Xbox to survive two years, mm. let alone 20 years. Right. As you look back, I know you're not involved in the business day to day anymore, but what surprises you most about where Xbox is today? And, and what would you have told the Robbie of 20 years ago, maybe to give yourself some assurances back then? I'll answer the second part of that first. I'm not sure there are any assurances. Uh, when you're in a startup, the likelihood of success is low. And Xbox was absolutely a startup. Now, a sillily funded startup. So yeah. we weren't going to fail because of lack of funding. But just like any other startup, we had to figure out what made us different. We had to figure out what differentiated us and why people were going to accept another entry into the video game space. And there are just no guarantees. And I, I don't even think at the time, I, I've looked back at it, I don't think at the time I thought about the risk. But that was a, was a high-risk option. And, and look, if it hadn't been for Halo, Xbox Live, and two patient people named Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, Xbox would not have survived. Yeah. And your your to your point would have been exactly right. You know, if I think about if I think about what would I tell myself, you know, 
back then, you know, I, I think the biggest thing I tell myself is to pay attention to strategy and pay attention to culture. When I talk to startup CEOs now, I obviously ask some questions about the technology and the product and all those kinds of things. But I ask way more questions about, do you actually understand your core strategy? And have you really consciously thought about the culture of your group? And, and so I, that's just my natural reaction now when I talk to, to startup folks. And it's a function of what I learned during that startup of Xbox. Robbie, I listened to a, a great podcast with you uh, from uh, last month where you were talking about kind of your Avengers uh, style of leadership. And right. everybody ha- every, each, each Avenger has their own superpower. As part of that and doing the cross uh, Marvel uh, DC <laughs> uh, mix up, you also said startup founders and CEOs, they also have their kryptonite. I'm curious in – Talking to startups and and leaders, what is the most common like kryptonite you see for those folks, and how do you get them to rise above that, or at least acknowledge it, maybe to begin with? Well, I, I think it depends. My my experience with startup founders is there's kind of there's uh, multiple uh, types, but I'll, I'll I'll broadly categorize as two. One is person who is deeply technical and loves the technology. And the other is the person who understands the business and, you know, maybe has a technical partner, but um, knows there's a chance to create a discontinuity in the marketplace. And in the former case, the biggest problem is people who just love the technology and haven't thought about, okay, well, A, why do people care? What's the crisp? customer benefit and why is this different from what somebody else is doing so basically mark zuckerberg at facebook right (laughs) (laughs) so i i I won't go there you know look i mean bill was a little bit that way for sure right i mean the company microsoft hired people who were technically smart and pursued random technologies because of the technology and and sometimes that led to a great business and sometimes it led to stuff that just didn't pan out or was way ahead of its time. And so you, you have to be focused on, on that. And, and then on the other side, when you get the business people, you know, as a business person, you, you tend to, you know, get hung up on the process and the plan and orchestrating and managing. And sometimes in a, in a startup, you know, you just got to go. And getting business people to just go, I think, is, is actually quite hard. So at Xbox, it seemed like you were successful in bringing those two groups together. How were you able to do that? And what were some of the pitfalls along the way to get there? Well, the biggest pitfall along the way was the whole first version of the product. Because in the whole first version of the product, we had what I would describe as probably the most talented team I've ever worked with, but all individuals. And it was also the most dysfunctional team of people I've ever worked with, too. (laughs) And the, and the reason, you know, so we had really great people. I mean, Jay Allard's brilliant. Todd Holmdahl was a, was a great guy. Ed Freeze was really good at what he did. You know, I could go through the whole team. They were all individually really good, but we just didn't work together. And I was a perfectly accomplished business leader, but I'm a, uh, in my explorer, pioneers, and settlers uh, world, I'm a settler. I'm not an explorer or a pioneer. So you got a guy who is by nature somebody who scales businesses, trying to work with a group of people who are starting a business, and we're not working together as a team. That wasn't a good recipe. 
When we got to the second version of the product, we started going down the path that you talked about with the Avengers, where we basically said, look, we're a team. We're each good at different things. Let's optimize for that. And so I let Todd Holmdahl decide what was going on on the hardware side. I let Jay decide what was going on on Xbox Live and the software side. And you started to see the benefits of those individual superpowers come out. And then we we tried to form and did ultimately form a culture that was Team Xbox. And that, to me, was super powerful. And, and getting, getting a startup CEO to think that way is actually quite hard. Because in a startup, you know, the CEO spends 60 or 70% of his or her time raising money, for crying out loud. So the idea that they're going to think about culture and team and leadership skills and all that kind of stuff, it's not intuitive. Robbie, I, I assume that you didn't start your speech at the 20th anniversary celebration by saying, God, this was the most dysfunctional group of people I ever worked with. <laughs> no, you're right. I didn't. You're right. I did. What I did start that speech with uh, is I, I said to people, uh, just true story, I said, look, I, I was the accidental chief Xbox officer. Uh, this was never supposed to be a business I was supposed to run. You're not a gamer. I don't play games. I'm not technical. I don't play games, but naturally I'm the perfect person to run one of the more technical businesses at Microsoft that is an entertainment business. I mean, I, that makes no sense, but you know that Rick Thompson was going to run the business and very early on Rick decided to leave. And so literally the next day I'm in a meeting with Jay Allard deciding what our third party publishing agreement is going to look like. I didn't even know what a third party publishing agreement was. So you know, sometimes these things happen. It's sort of the serendipity of life and you just have to dig in. And, you know, for better or for worse, that's what I did. But you have the business chops. You had the business chops. You had experience at Microsoft in businesses, including Office. And so it really is probably another startup lesson in that the CEO of a company like this, and of course you were leading this business unit almost as the CEO in some ways, can come in not necessarily with a, a, a super deep first-hand knowledge and still have some success. Well, I think it goes back to what we were discussing earlier about that Avengers theory. I had to find what I was really good at and then do that. And the rest of the team had to be, have uh, the ability to do what they were really good at. And I think for startup CEOs, that's always the challenge. You start a CEO, you think, well, I got to be in charge. I have to you know, run the business, raise the money, manage the technology and do all those kinds of things. And Sure, it's all hands on deck, but you got to find what people are great at and then optimize for that. And it took me, you know, three years to figure that out. I'm a full learner, but we got there. Robbie, here's my theory. The Ethernet port on the original Xbox was the most important port in the history of gaming, possibly one of the most important in the history of technology. Is that overstating it? Uh, it's certainly one of the most important things we've done in the history of gaming. Explain why for folks who may not understand. Well, yeah. let's tell the full story. Xbox, the whole idea was always it was going to be a connected console. So that wasn't new. And we were sort of building on a little bit of work that Sega Dreamcast had done unsuccessfully. And we had this debate about, well, we have a 56K modem in the design and we have an Ethernet port in the design. And the team was under a lot of pressure to cut costs in the box. And so we decided to take the 56K modem out. We're in a meeting with Bill where we told him that, and he said, well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> Bill said that in every meeting. <laughs> I know, he did. He did. <laughs> and so, so we backed up, and we had to go back and explain to him that if we didn't bet on broadband, the box was not going to win. And broadband meant an Ethernet port. 
and it meant you didn't need the 56k modem at all you know as they as they say you know let's just let's go forward we, we can't look back and people forget this but in 1999 2000 when we were making these decisions broadband did not exist i mean it was so early in the process and it wasn't clear how the cable companies and the telco companies and all the providers was going to work out. That was a completely, you know, virgin ground. And so the idea that you were going to produce a, a game console that was going to rely on an Ethernet port for an Internet connection to create this multiplayer gaming service that, oh, by the way, you were going to charge for and that was going to have voice communications. I mean, all sounds completely logical today, but that was a revolution. And if you look at those early days, especially of the Xbox 360, I think that's where, where it really came into its own. Xbox Live was the differentiator in many ways. For sure. Especially at a time when PlayStation and Nintendo with, I guess, maybe the GameCube and the early Wii, they did not have it together on, on the online gaming front. That was Microsoft's key differentiator and, and really made Xbox what it is today in many ways. Totally right. And, you know, think about this. You know, Xbox Live was a social network before MySpace. Forget Facebook. This is before MySpace. How many subscription services do you think you had in 2001? I can't even remember 2001, barely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you might, you, you might have had you might have had a cell phone, yeah. maybe, and you might have had your cable. Yeah, and Time Magazine. Yeah, and a, and a magazine, exactly. <laughs> so think about us charging $49 a year for a subscription service in 2002. You know, those were big decisions, and they did fundamentally change video games. There's no question about that. John, it strikes me that this is a real startup lesson here. You know, you, you see the future, and you make the bet. It's the tech decision. It's the business bravery. It's tough. And a lot of luck, because it, Bill Gates could have easily said, hey, no, we're sticking with the modem. <laughs> no, no, you're right. And, and look, because you make the bet doesn't mean you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you make the bet and it doesn't work out. That's why a lot of startups fail. But you can't run a startup if you aren't saying, hey, I'm going to be demonstrably different. I'm going to push the boundary into a place where people are uncomfortable, where there's uncertainty, and where there's no competitor who's already done that work. And you know, if we had copied Sony 100%, we would have died. Right. And I do want to correct one thing. I'm was not there, but I know almost for certain that Bill did not say that was the dumbest thing he ever heard. He said it was the stupid, stupidest effing thing he ever heard. <laughs> right? That was the yeah. quote. Hey, look, I always modify <laughs> some of those quotes. I always modify <laughs> some of those quotes. This, this is a family show. <laughs> I don't know. I read far enough into the Wilkes inter insurrection, Robbie. I know you're dropping a few f bombs in this novel. Uh, the, so. the, the novel, the novel does not go. It's well, it's got military people. It's got a lot of uh, interesting folks in it. So it does not go softly on the language. That's for sure. So Robbie, I'm curious, looking back 20 years history of Xbox, was there a moment at the company where you just, you realize we're hitting it and we're, we're, we're now grooving and this is, this is going to be a massive success. There, there are, were two key moments for me. And it's interesting. If you ask the various leaders of the Xbox team, they all pick a different moment, hmm. which is very interesting to me. For me, there were two moments where I said, okay, we've actually found something. The first is an uh, external moment. We're at E3 in 2004, and uh, we're on stage announcing that Electronic Arts is joining Xbox Live. They had been a holdout for a couple of years, 
And so that was a huge deal. They had all their cover athletes for every sport on stage with us. And the last of which was Muhammad Ali. Oh, wow. And so we had been backstage with uh, Muhammad Ali. He'd been, he couldn't talk at that point because of his Parkinson's, but he was doing magic tricks with us. He took photos with us. I had this photo where he grabbed my fist and put it to his face um, and called the photographer over to take the photo. And you go on stage and people went completely nuts. And at that point to me, I mean, E3 was always a, a horror show for me for a lot of different reasons. It was always a really hard show. That was the one show where everything just went like that and where you sort of knew, okay, we've arrived. Uh, we are now part of mainstream entertainment. Internally, we had a, uh, as, as Todd knows, we had these executive staff retreats every year. We went up to uh, Semiamu up in northern Washington and all the vice presidents would get together. And I knew we had made a, a lot of progress when Steve asked us, the Xbox team, to talk about the strategy process we used to put together the Xbox business plan for Xbox 360. And wow. that's a compliment. Yeah. I had people from other divisions come up to us afterwards and say, Hey, that was really cool. Help tell me how you did that. And now you start to get people across the company who are actually proud of Xbox. Look, first two years, a lot of people in the company wanted it killed. It was sucking money. It was hurting the company's reputation. It was draining talent from the rest of the company and people didn't like it. And so it's sort of in that 2003, 2004 timeframe, people started to see what was possible and that made a huge difference. When you look at Microsoft today, do you think you could build an Xbox style organization company? Yeah, I actually think you could. And in fact, I think uh, Satya has done an excellent job of bringing in new ideas and new talent in different ways. Think about, like, I, I was there during some, some, a bunch of acquisitions, almost none of which, with the exception of Bungie, most of the acquisitions didn't turn out well. They're really hard. Satya and, and the team there have sort of figured out, hey, we can bring in companies like LinkedIn and turn it into, continue to help build it into something great, have it fit into Microsoft without force-fitting it, without taking it over and ruining it. Uh, you look at what Phil Spencer's done with the acquisitions in the games business. Uh, I mean, just you know, bringing in new talent. And those are independent little businesses, and they are blossoming inside Microsoft. You know, even I look, I know it's been now a number of years, but Panos Panay was able to build the Surface business. I mean, building a PC hardware business inside Microsoft is not the world's easiest problem. And he's really, did that really successfully. Um, so I think it, I think it's possible. And I think it takes a leadership style that allows people to take some risk and allows people to bet on some things. And I think the culture at Microsoft now is probably makes that a little bit easier. I really think somebody needs to write Steve Ballmer's bio and really focus on his tenure as CEO, hmm. because if you look at it, he had these spectacular failures, you know, a Quaniv, Nokia. And yet all along the way, he was laying the groundwork for things that today have redefined the company, the cloud, the surface business. I'm mm -hmm. sure you could name a bunch of others. And so it's this really interesting situation of like delayed, not gratification, but sort of, you know, the, the delayed completion of, of this, you know, sort of long-term thing. 
I'm not convinced he actually knew what he was doing, but he did so many things that, you know. Well, I actually, I actually think Steve, Steve was pretty conscious about those things. And Steve was not afraid of big bets. Look, he bet on, on Xbox. Xbox doesn't exist without Steve. No question. And so I don't, I think he was willing to make those big bets. I, I worked for Steve for seven years and they were the seven best professional years of my career. And I learned a lot from him. And I think he's underappreciated as a CEO in terms of the, as you say, the groundwork that he laid for the company. You know, I think the flip side, so, so I think that's a hundred percent true. And Steve should get credit for that and should, should accrue that. The thing that didn't get done during his tenure was a rethinking of Microsoft culture. And that's the first thing Satya did. And Satya had this wonderful good fortune of being able to take advantage of Steve's strategic groundwork and an opportunity to really address the cultural changes that needed to be made. And he made some good choices in doing that. That's the innovator's dilemma, right? I mean, Palmer had been around since the very early days, seen everything work perfectly well under Bill Gates. It's very hard and very risky to say, okay, folks, changing the culture now. Whereas once it's broken, it's easy to come in and say, hey, let's fix this damn thing. The thing I, the thing I always say to people, people ask me about that transition from Steve to Satya all the time. And, and the thing I say to people is they're both good, great CEOs. It's just there's a life in the company and a life in a CEO where it's time for somebody else to run the business. And Microsoft had gotten to that time. And that's neither a, 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 a knock on Steve nor even a, a bonus for Satya. It's just the time had come. And it happened in, I would say, a little bit of a cataclysmic way. So that was too bad, but still a positive thing for everybody involved. Well, yeah, look at Microsoft stock today. So uh, yes, everyone, <laughs> yeah, no kidding, doing, no kidding. Doing quite well. You mentioned that the seven years working for Steve was the most uh, pro- best part of your professional career and you learned the most from him. I'm curious, what was the thing you learned from him? Steve, you learn a bunch of things. First of all, you learn a lot about math. Um, you got to know the numbers with Steve. And so I learned to really understand the Xbox P&L, uh, the, the profit and loss statement, where our expenses were, where our revenue came from, what were our revenue streams, what made those revenue streams tick. And, you know, that, that stuff I'm actually pretty good at. And yet I had to learn how to really do it. The Xbox business was a very complicated financial business. People don't actually even think about it that way. They go, oh, well, you know, you sell some video games. Was, we had like seven revenue streams each of which was a little different. And Steve really understood that and got me to understand it. The other thing Steve was unbelievably good at was understanding customers. Um, Really good at it. But like business customers, right? Non-developers. Think about developers. Oh, Oh, well, yeah. Developers, developers, developers. Exactly. In In the Xbox case, we had multiple customer sets. We had developers. We had publishers, different from developers. We had consumers. Um, we also had Wall Street Press and other things. And Steve was really good at saying, okay, you know, let's talk about what you guys are doing. So what's the message to developers? What's the message to your publishers? How are you thinking about that at the consumer brand level? He's very, very thoughtful about that. And, you know, for a guy who has a reputation, I think, of being, um, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, a, a quick thinker, a math guy, uh, 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 you know, sometimes people, people viewed him as a little bit of a know-it-all. And that wasn't the Steve I, 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 I knew. Steve was a guy who, who asked me really hard questions. And he expected me to know the answers. And rightfully so. 
And so, you know, I, I took all that ex- experience away and it has helped me in other things that I've done. All right, I'll stop capitalizing on this for my future Balmer biography. But uh, <laughs> I, I will say, I do think you're right on, and from my perspective, of course you're right on, you worked with him, Robbie. But I, I think he, in his public life, has become a caricature of himself, in part thanks to his own doing, because he likes or liked to jump around stage. And, well, gosh. Well, he sure does on, on the, the Clippers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We are talking with Robbie Bach. He has a new book out. It is called The Wilkes Insurrection. We're going to talk about that later on. But coming up next, I want to talk about the metaverse. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest this week is Robbie Bach. For many years, he led Microsoft's Xbox business. He has gone on to a variety of pursuits in the nonprofit and literary worlds. Robbie, I am really curious. You are on the board of Magic Leap, right? augmented reality company that's now led by Peggy Johnson, who was Microsoft's business development leader. And so this actually, I think, is one of your few current corporate board. You were on the Sonos board and and others, but now you've really narrowed down on this. What can you tell us about Magic Leap from your perspective? Why'd you join the board and what do you think of the company? Well, I joined the board because uh, I'm pretty excited about uh, AR technology. And, you know, again, I'm not the technology guy, but I see the business promise of the technology itself. I was never a big fan of virtual reality. I'm still uh, somewhat cautious about what I would call full virtual reality. But I think the idea of being able to augment our surroundings and interact with that augmentation, I think, is is really quite quite powerful. It's powerful in the consumer sense, and it's powerful in the in the business sense. And you know, ironically, there is a augmented reality, virtual reality company in my new book. And so I literally interviewed every AR VR startup in Seattle as research for my book. And so, I, and all of whom went out of business except for one. But, uh, <laughs> but that's the nature of startups, right? But I learned a lot about the technology and the business, and developed some real serious views. So when I got a call from from Peggy Johnson, who I had never worked with, but I met after I left Microsoft, uh, and I learned that she was the new CEO, I started to do some research. I talked to some people who were investors in Magic Leap, and really felt like they had a real opportunity. Now you have to think about Magic Leap as a startup. You know, they shipped a product. They went, you know, 10 years, you know, three plus billion dollars of investment and, and the initial product failed, right? As a consumer product, it wasn't successful. But I look at the company now as, as a, as a new startup. They have, and except they're a new startup that's on their V2 product. And they've pivoted to enterprise, which is where I think there's a ton of money to be made and a great use case for customers. Their technology is really first first class. Um, they've done very deep optics work. Uh, I'm super excited about what they're gonna be able to do. And so I think they, you know, look, I'm, a, I'm a, obviously a fan, I joined the board, but 
I think there's a, a, a real opportunity. And ironically, of course, they compete with HoloLens, which is, you know, run by a bunch of guys who used to work on the Xbox business. <laughs> so all these things all come full circle. And I have a great deal of respect for them. But, uh, you know, I think Magic Leap's going to have its place in this, in this environment. And I think there's real opportunity for it. Why aren't you a believer in VR? Well, look, I think there's some VR things that are interesting. But, look, I, I think disassociating myself from the world is just a bad social thing. Like, even in the video game space, people would say, well, video games disassociate people. No, in fact, video games bring people together. Um, you think about Xbox Live, and one of the things that was cool about working with an Xbox and Xbox Live is it bring, brought groups together. During the pandemic, what were people doing? Well, a lot of people were playing on Xbox Live with their friends and talking with them. And so VR, to me, is this escapism thing, which I suppose has a little bit of a place. It's kind of like, you know, reading a, you know, a, a, a novel that lets you escape into some virtual world. But, you know, I think as a large marketplace, that's not where the beef of the tomato is. I think the beef of the tomato is people who want to be present in today's world. But for a lot of different reasons, either as a consumer or from an enterprise business perspective, you want to add things to that world, be able to manipulate, manage them and, and deal with them. Um, it's a little bit more minority report than it is, you know, a, some sci-fi thriller. And, and I think that's really where the market's going to go. Are, are you sure you and Robbie aren't related? <laughs> it's like, you have very similar thoughts. Yes, yes. I do. I do. So what do you make of all the buzz around the metaverse then? The hot, well, hot well, buzzword of the day. Because that's supposed and, to be social. It's and, supposed it, to be social. I mean, if you listen to Mark Zuckerberg, he is saying it's, it is going to be this very great social well, for, first uh, of all, connection first, point. First of all, let's, let's, step, let's talk about the word metaverse. I mean, I, I haven't read the book yet. I now ordered it. But you know where the word started, right? Well, Neil Stevenson. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Which, that, if that's the future of our world, I don't want anything to do with the metaverse, right? <laughs> By the way, our, yeah, our colleague Alan Boyle did a great interview with Neil Stevenson about this, which yeah, we linked to. So, so yeah. if you, if you, if you want to think about the metaverse in that context – have at it, but I don't want my business. It's so, so bad branding. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think what I think what's happening. Well, people are calling it Web three as well, and other terms. So you right. know, I think I think the challenge that everybody's facing is: is it AR? Is it VR? Is it mixed reality? The industry association is called the XRA, if you can believe that. So you know, people are struggling with things to call it. Um, I don't happen to think rebranding the company Meta is going to help change anything for for Facebook or anything else. I mean, Alphabet hasn't changed anything for Google, in my opinion. So I don't think that's going to change anything. And I don't, I while I think there is AR applications in what Facebook does, for sure, I get the strategic bet they're making. But I, the idea that, you know, I'm going to have my virtual life on one side and my real life on another side, I, I, I don't want to live that life. Um, I might want to add things to my current life, but I don't want to be sort of um, divisive in my, in my time and energy. So you mentioned gaming as kind of a connection point, a way to bring people together, especially with this younger generation of, of kids who are growing up with games as such a immersive component of your, of their lives. Does that bring any concern to you that, I mean, just the massive amount of screen time and, uh, time they're spending in these, either a virtual world, a, a mixed reality or, I mean, because 
we struggle with that as parents, frankly. Yeah, I think I think every company in the gaming space and every company in this augmented reality space, whatever you want to call it, has social responsibility that they have to live up to. I I, I really deeply believe that. Um, and if I were still in the business. I would want my business to be at the forefront of defining the policy things around that, what's required, what parental controls are required, um, what information do you have to give parents, how do you empower parents to be in, in charge of, of the technology and things like that. Look, there's a ton of, of social issues around all of this that we have to sort out. And unfortunately, what's happened, what happened in social media is we let the technology charge ahead and now we're dealing with the aftermath after the fact. And you can't put that genie back in the bottle. And what I would really like to see happen in the AR space is to have people be proactive and say, hey, we're going to talk about this now. We're going to figure this out. We're going to have the hard policy discussions. I am chair of the board of the Bipartisan Policy Center. They have a project that they are just kicking off on how to inform and help policymakers think about AR and VR. And they are engaging with people, including Facebook, and the XRA in trying to think about that proactively. It's something we have to get ahead of. And it's a real issue. I, I, I'm not a, it doesn't scare me, right? I'm not negative on the technology itself, but you got to be proactive about it. Well, Facebook would say that they, they can take all the lessons that they learn from screwing up on social media and they can apply these to, to the metaverse. One of the other things that kind of stood out to me when we were watching the, the Facebook presentation on this was the fact that Facebook was going to become this massive collaborator with other folks to make sure that this is built in the right way. I know going back to the start of our conversation where you said you like to collaborate and bring teams together and you had to do that in a very creative way at Xbox with a lot of different partners. Do you think they are actually set up to do that? And what advice would you give them as they're going down that path to build out this, this ecosystem in the way that does bring in other partners? I think there's a couple things they have to think about. One, there's definitely a cultural thing they have to think about. I've met Mark Zuckerberg once for an hour, so I don't know him well. But certainly his public persona is not a collaborative public persona. Um, and I look, I come from a company who didn't have a, a, a collaborative persona either, so I know the uh, I know the gene the genome type uh, pretty well. <laughs> so um, I think that would have to change. The second thing that I think Facebook's going to struggle with is the business model. When your business model is eyeballs, it motivates you to do things that aren't necessarily in the best social interest. And that's fundamentally the problem. If, if for, your, for your listeners, if they want to read something interesting, Alex Kantrowitz wrote an article this week and was arguing that LinkedIn has the best social media model because it doesn't rely on advertising for much of its revenue. And so you get a cleaner experience with people aligned in their motivations for why they're there and you don't have all the, the or as much of the noise. And I think there's some validity to that. And so I, 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 uh, I think Facebook's going to have to think about, okay, well, if, if this is in fact the case, what is the business model and how do we align the business model with good social practices? And I think that's, that's fundamentally what's screwed up on, the, on social media is that the business model doesn't align with doing the right thing. And it's really hard to get out of that bind. Robbie, I want to get to your book real fast, though. This is the problem with all the things that you're involved in. John and I were both talking beforehand. We're very intrigued by your role in the Bipartisan Policy Center. Sure. 
what are you hoping to accomplish with that? Well, the BPC's focus, uh, you know, they're not a traditional think tank. Uh, traditional think tanks do research. The BPC's focus is policy. And so what they do is they get people from both sides of the aisle together in a room and they say, we're going to talk about uh, housing policy. And they just opened a new housing re- center to focus specifically on how we fix the housing crisis in the United States. And this isn't a do a bunch of research, you know, produce a report someday. It's, all right, we're going to write policy. And then we're going to go to the Hill and we're going to move that policy and push that policy. A lot of what just got passed in the Infrastructure Act has been BPC work that they've been doing for the last five or six years. And they were deeply involved in that work. And they're deeply involved in doing a bunch of the work around budget uh, reform and how we fix this crazy reconciliation process we have. And so for me, I'm a practical guy. I want to be involved in things that um, are proposing practical solutions. The BPC does a, a really strong job of, of doing that in an environment which, let's just be clear, as the Wilkes insurrection makes clear, um, is a crazy environment. It's a really tough environment. So this seems like a just an extraordinary challenge based on where our country is and how polarized mm. we are today. What, what mm. gives you hope that you can actually crack the code here and push us, push us beyond just the rhetoric of how we're so splintered. Well, I, look, in an honest moment, I will tell you, I think it's probably going to get a little worse before it's going to get better. Um, but I also am enough of a, a loose historian to know that we've been in worse places as a country over the last 250 years. And we've been more splintered and more fragmented and, and leave aside the civil war, which is the obvious example. But if you actually look at history carefully, there's been four five, six other examples where the country was deeply divided and where we figured out a way to, to get to the other side. And I think the biggest problem we have actually is an absence of leadership. And so it's going to take a series, a next generation, honestly, of leaders to come to the forefront who say, hey, we're going to lead in a different way than the people we have leading us now. And I'm not I'm not even making a Republican or a Democratic statement. I'm just making a broad brush, unfair statement that most of the leadership we have today is not focused on the right things. So you know what period of history this reminds me of that sure. we're living in today? Tell what me. is it? Well, I was going to have you guess. Um, <laughs> or Todd guess. I- uh, if I were guessing, I would I would have said the Industrial Revolution re- late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. That's looking at it more from the from the technology side, I would mm. say, and I could I could get on board with that. But I was thinking more on the political side. I was going to say McCarthyism. Yeah, absolutely, a great example. Although, no, it's, I think it's a wonderful example. It just never got very far. It, it was short lived. Short lived. I mean, yes. it was pretty painful when people lived and. We've probably even surpassed the amount of time that that era. But so hopefully, hopefully you're right. Hopefully this gets worse before it gets better, but it's hopefully it runs it runs its course and runs out of steam. Yeah. The reason I compare it to the late 1800s and the progressive era is you had uh, wealth issues. The disparity between the rich and the poor was really high. Yeah, Robert Barron's. There's a lot of change going on in the world. Um, and it took a progressive movement with a little P, a progressive movement to develop policies that were more rational and brought us into a a post-industrial age that actually was able to flourish. Coming up next, we will talk about Robbie Bach's book, The Wilkes Insurrection, a contemporary thriller. You're listening to GeekWire. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. 
Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest is Robbie Bach, the former Microsoft executive, nonprofit leader, author, and novelist who just published The Wilkes Insurrection, a contemporary thriller. Robbie, I just bought the Kindle version. I didn't have time to get the hardback before we were going to talk with you. I've just started reading it, and but I noticed you don't have an audiobook version, so I'm going to make my pitch right here to read it, all right? This is from the prologue. Okay. He stepped through the secret passageway in the right wall of his living room and with some extra effort pulled the hidden door shut behind him. This special escape hatch had not been easy to construct. Building a fake bookcase and cutting through the wall into the next apartment quietly and without assistance was no easy task. He'd gotten the idea from the Chronicles of Narnia. Now he was the terrorist in the wardrobe. An irony not lost on him. How's that? <laughs> Great reading, Todd. Hey, you, you're making your sir, pitch to be I, the, I, I, to the, yes, the reader. Seriously, it, Robbie, you can write. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank I, you I was much. really impressed. I mean, this hooked me. The, the intro hooked me. Uh, yeah. So, so, so t- tell us about this book. Well, I wrote my first book, Xbox Revisited, which you and I discussed ages ago. And I discovered I really like writing. And so I started writing fiction based on characters. So I literally wrote 100 pages of character arcs, about four or five characters that have been running around in my head. And from that, after writing that 100 pages, I said, oh, I can see a plot here. And I started to shape a plot. And then I wrote the prologue, which you just read. And that prologue is a scene that takes place uh, probably 80% of the way through the story. And I didn't know how I was going to get there. I had no plot yet to get there. But I wrote that saying, okay, this is a place I'm going to get to. And I'm going to take this character set that I have and we're going to go there. And from that came the the outline of the Wilkes insurrection. And, you know, I, I, I wrote that through mostly in 2016 and 2017, and I've been working on editing and refining uh, things ever since. And, you know, I only write probably 20 or 30% of my time. So it has been a, a huge joy. The main character, Major Tamika Smith, I think is, she's clearly my favorite. She's uh, kind of a badass, but also superhuman and has real human challenges or real issues she's faced in her life. And I think that's what draws me to her. Um, and, you know, I, I probably spend in the book 40% of the time writing from a woman's perspective, which is super interesting and, and, and challenging and intellectual, intellectually challenging. I think it's a, I'm obviously completely biased, but I think it's a, it's a great thriller. As you get into it, the feedback I get from people, the pacing is really good. People really enjoy the story. They love the characters. There's a nice techno aspect to it um, that sort of fits with my background. And then, you know, in the end of the day, there's a little bit of a message about what's going on in the country, uh, which is good. Without spoiling the plot, can you give us a sense for that message? Well, I think the, the basics of the plot are there is an anarchist who has decided that his job is to bring down the country and bring down the government. And his way of doing that is to take advantage of the divisions we have already. 
and imagine that. Yeah, I know. And to attack the country at its weakest spots, which are its infrastructure and to use that to create divide, uh, inside the United States Hmm. and Tamika and some other characters in the book, which I, I won't go too much into, but there's a dark web hacker. There's an FBI guy. They, uh, together, sometimes together, sometimes individually, have to bring this anarchist down, and that's the the main plot line of the story. And it's uh, it's got some elements of techno in it for sure. It's got some uh, elements of political thriller in it, uh, of course. There's a lot lots of action, and um, I think it's really strongly character driven, which I, I I really like. And you've said there are pieces of you in each of the characters. If you were, are there pieces of other people from your, oh, from for your sure. business life? Oh, for sure. so, oh, okay, for sure. so I want to ask, oh, where, where does Bill Gates appear and which character? <laughs> Bill, <laughs> Bill, Bill doesn't actually, Bill doesn't actually appear anywhere. There is a, there is a startup guy named Paul Hayek in the book who I would say has, um, a little elements of all the startup guys you you think of, maybe think of a cross between perhaps uh, like a an Elon Musk and a Paul Allen. Um, so there's a little bit uh, there's absolutely that in uh, in Paul Hayek. Um, so there are pieces. People always ask me, you know, did, is who's that person modeled after? And the answer is, I, I've tried to bring pieces together for people. Uh, you know, Tamika Smith, people say, well, is that just you as a female? And the answer is no, Tamika and I actually aren't that much alike. You know, she's a world-class sprinter. She was in the Air Force. She's, you know, uh, you know, really smart, you know, all those kinds of things. We're just not that much alike. And, and yeah, sure, of course, there's little elements of me and her and little elements of me and some of the other characters too. So you, you try to bring those things together and, and, and build them out. So Robbie, what gaming studio... Do you want to have create the Xbox game Ooh. of the book? Oh, well, of course he's got. I mean, say. it seems he's like got, it's completely set up there. for a for a <laughs> clearly for it's a, a bungee, video game bungee title, right? right? The truth is, the truth is, I think it's probably less likely to be a video game and more likely to be a ten part Netflix series. Ooh. Right. I Good mean, it, question, the, John. It, when you when you when you read the book, and and Todd, you can you can judge this, and you can send me a note. I'd love to get your feedback on it. But Todd's going to read it aloud, by the way, and send you the the audio <laughs> the version, book so you can just upload so you can just upload it directly. Well, the best yeah. the, the best part of it, hearing Todd read that, is literally last night I started reading the audio files for the audio book. There you go. I have to read 66 chapters, so it's uh, they're all short, but um, I'm on like chapter six, and I'm going to read through, listen to the entire book on audio. So are there serious discussions about maybe taking this to a streaming platform? Do you think that's something you do? I, I have, I've had a couple of people send me notes about it. I've frankly been too busy sort of doing the marketing for the book and doing book events and things like that to pursue it any um, but it's probably something I'll, I'll, I'll pursue when the, when the time, time comes. I, you know, I think those types of series are character driven and, you know, you have to have a great character to carry the, and great characters to carry those types of series. And because Tamika Smith is stro- so strong, in my opinion, and, and pretty iconic for a lot of different reasons, um, you know, I, I think there's a chance that that could carry the day, but we all know that's like, you know, a, you know, ace of spades on the river. It's not an easy, uh, that's not an easy card to get dealt. So we'll, we'll see what plays out there. 
Well, the book is The Wilkes Insurrection. Robbie Bach, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. This has been fantastic. Hey, hey guys, any 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 time. And uh, if, you, if people have feedback, whatever, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, all the appropriate places. And uh, it's wilkesinsurrection.com. That's the place. There's actually a trailer there. If you go look, watch the trailer, there's a book trailer there. And uh, you can check it out and sort of understand what the book's all about. Excellent. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We'll be back next week with a special Thanksgiving holiday episode of the GeekWire podcast, talking about all the things we're thankful about the stories we're thankful about from the past year yeah some of the cool innovations that have happened and and everything else all right so stay tuned for that next week thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time